You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. How will changes in U.S. healthcare public policy affect the clinical practice of medicine? Big changes are on the horizon. Will physicians have a part in the dialogue? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing generic drugs for new uses. And with me is former Governor of Colorado, Governor Richard D. Lamb, Center for Public Policy and Contemporary Issues at the University of Denver, and author of two books, The Brave New World of Healthcare and Condition Critical, A New Moral Vision for Healthcare. Governor Lamb and I are discussing the public policy issues surrounding the U.S. healthcare system and the potential impact on practicing physicians. Governor Lamb, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks so much. So, in a nutshell, what do you think is going on with the U.S. healthcare system right now? Well, it's one of those times where we live in the best of times and we live in the worst of times. I think we live in the best of times to be sick, if certainly if you're covered by health insurance, because there's so many different wonderful things that we can do to the human body as it ages. The dark side of that or the downside of that is it's very expensive and it's really compromising, I believe, other public policy goals and um, sort of the burden that it's putting on our children and grandchildren is likely to um, very much affect their options in life. So I think there's good news and bad news. So how much is it costing us these days and where do you see this going if we don't make a change? Well, it's about $6,500 per capita in the United States. The average person in the United States spends more money on health care than they do on their state taxes. That health care has become the biggest consumer item in the family budget. It used to be your house now the biggest thing you'll buy in your lifetime is your health care. So it's a significant player. It takes 16% of our GDP, and it's filled with wonderful things, but that it's time to start asking some questions and talking about some options. And how fast is this growing compared to other things in the U.S. economy? Well, there's a few things that may be growing faster, with certainly the costs of uh, computers. I mean, the, the cost of computers have been going down, but the family budget, all of a sudden, we're finding things that we didn't have to pay for before, i.e. computers. Um, but you're finding that uh, healthcare has been growing at two and a half times the rate of inflation, and there's very few things in the personal or national budget that has been growing uh, that fast. And if we don't do something about it, when will 100% of our GMP go to healthcare? The experts that look at this will say sometime around 2060, our healthcare system would take 100% of the GDP at uh, the current rate of medical cost inflation. We all know that's not going to happen, but it certainly focuses the mind. So what are the public policy options in helping to get this under control? The number of systems that different countries have, I think all play a role to be examined. And all of the systems that other countries have, I think, have parts of them that are worth considering. But the general category would be employer mandate, uh, mandating employers to have health insurance for all employees, individual mandate, which is what Massachusetts has recently done and has become a model for other states, single-payer system, where there's a single-payer, like uh, Medicare is a single-payer system, Canada is a single-payer system that has a number of advocates in the United States. You have now consumer-directed health care that people are talking about, where the individual plays a bigger role in making their decisions. And you have, lastly, sort of universal vouchers. Health economist Victor Fuchs at Stanford is, and a number of other people are saying we all ought to have a voucher every year 
to be able to decide what to do with health care. So those would be the five big systems. So let's uh, examine each one individually. Talk to us about employer-mandated systems. Well, that's worked out fairly well in Germany. And in the United States, we've talked about that. Hillary Clinton had a essentially form of employer mandate where employers either had to pay for their health care or pay a sort of an extra tax called pay or play. You either covered your employees or you um, had to pay a, an extra uh, amount. Uh, Massachusetts system is got elements of an employer mandate because if a company that has 11 or more people has to have health care for their people or pay a $295 extra surtax that they have to pay. So uh, actually employer mandate means employers have to cover all employees or pay into a alternate system. Germany has had this system since the 1880s. They do it through a series of sickness funds, and it seems to work out fairly well in Germany, uh, but Germany has also got a very expensive system. And what do we do for those that are unemployed or underemployed in a system like that? They're swept up in a, in a sick, in Germany in a sickness fund that is funded by the their federal government. So um, employer mandate is the backbone of the system, but you do have those people that are um, retired or unemployed that are swept up in other systems. Actually, retirees are members of the same sickness fund as they originally joined when they were working. So it's an alternative, and elements of this alternative are being considered in a number of states. And what's different about employer mandate than what we currently have where many people are covered by their employer insurance? Well, that's a voluntary system for the most part. One of the dilemmas in American public policy is that um, 10 years ago, 69% of um, employers uh, covered their employees. Now it's less than 60%. So what's happened since the Second World War is uh, most employees got their health care through their employer, and that system right now, because of costs, because of uh, some very valid reasons on the part of the employers, they simply can't uh, afford it anymore, and they're asking for system change. But the employer system has been a very good system for the United States up to a point. It's not, I believe, Um, adequate to carry us into the future. So we've investigated employer mandate. Now let's talk a little bit about individual mandate and Massachusetts. Massachusetts has a very fascinating system that I think is um, the the latest innovation where Governor Romney, uh, as a, a Republican governor, sat down with the Democrats in the legislature. And they had, by the way, an interesting procedural thing where they said everybody at the table and everything was on the table. And what they did is come up with an individual mandate, sort of like auto insurance. They're going to try the best they can to require individuals to buy health insurance and with help from the state of Massachusetts if they can't afford it. And when they buy their health insurance, is it like auto insurance that their rates will go up and down if they're healthier, if they take exercise classes, if they're taking their medications on time? They try to do as close to a community mandate uh, as they can. They try to get through what they call the health connector. They try to get large pools that people can join, and that's a key, some risk sharing on a large basis. 
But you do definitely in Massachusetts preserve the idea that to some degree individual circumstance relates to the amount of the the insurance premium. So let's shift from either the employer or the individual being responsible for this cost to what you described as a single-payer system. Tell us what that's about. Single-payer system, the best example is Canada, and that's where people pay taxes. uh, The employers have no role in the whole delivery of health care or the payment of health care. And you pay into the government, and the government then has a every year negotiates with um, through budgets with hospitals and uh, and physicians. And when the physician uh, delivers a service, they bill the government. Canadians seem to love it. It's got its own problems, but um, it seems to meet the needs of an awful lot of Canadians. How do the Canadian physicians like it? The polls show that the Canadian physicians like it a great deal. Um, there's a very vociferous minority that um, object to it because there are some burdens to this. There's, while the average Canadian gets to see their doctor as often or oftener than the average person in the United States, if you need a hip replacement or you need an MRI, there's certainly a lot of waiting in the system and people die on those waiting uh, lines. And so there's a lot of criticism from some of the specialists, but the polls show that there's a a certain dissatisfaction among American doctors with our system, a certain dissatisfaction with German doctors, Canadian doctors, because I think everybody has an ideal that they would love to see put into public policy, but none of us can get our ideal in healthcare. So the fourth one you mentioned was consumer-directed. Is that one of those ideals? It's the new uh, sort of conservative idea, and it's got some real important points behind it, that whenever you have a system where somebody else pays your costs, it takes all restraint off of that uh, transaction. And so one of the dilemmas of American health care is you have to pool risk. No matter how wealthy you are almost, something might happen to you. You either might get sick or in an accident and need health care, and you need to be a member of a risk pool. But as soon as you do that, you take away um, the mechanism that keeps people within bounds because people will take all of the health care that other people will pay for. So what you have in uh, consumer-directed health care is you try to make the market play a bigger role in individual decision-making. And how does that happen? Well, it does through co-pays. It does through medical savings accounts. It does through a number of other mechanisms where, for instance, a good example of that would be where an employer would pay $3,000 to an individual family that they can either spend on health care or keep if they don't spend it at the end of the year and then have sort of a catastrophic policy hanging over all of that. Uh, so consumer-directed health care would be let's get the consumer shopping more. Now that, in fact, is one of the problems with it, if I might criticize it, is that 83 cents out of every dollar in America, health dollar, is spent by uh, either insurance or government. And so people only spend 17 cents out of pocket, and it's pretty hard to make consumer-directed health care work when you're spending 17-cent dollars. And second of all, large amounts of our health care are spent on very sick and very elderly people, and it's pretty hard to make them good consumers of health care, smart, smart shoppers, so to speak. So there's things that are advantageous and things that are problematic with each of these solutions. So let's look at the last one called universal vouchers. Tell us the pros and cons of that one. Well, there's a very wonderful health economist named Victor Fuchs who argues that under our system in, in America, we're never going to get to a, um, a nationalized system, which some people are seeking, never going to get to a single-payer system because it involves shifting too much uh, money that is now paid for by employers into taxes, and Americans aren't going to stand for it. 
So what the universal voucher people are saying is let's take the money that is now being spent by the federal government and come up with a system of universal vouchers um, where um, you and your wife would every year be able to sit down and decide how to spend your voucher. You might decide it would be Kaiser Permanente, uh, Pacific Care, Aetna, whatever it would be, but people would have the, uh, the transaction. They would have the economic power themselves to choose into a system. We've got these five options, and there's probably more. How are we going to make this decision? Well, whether we like it or not, um, we're going to have to use a political system because that's now who spends over 50% of American health care. Never did we dream when we started Medicare and Medicaid back in 1965 that it would be grow to such uh, an extent as it has. But right now, it is such a major player in health care that the political system is going to have to decide um, if this money is going to be reallocated and how. I want to thank our guest, Governor Richard Lamb, for helping us to better understand the role of public policy in this volatile service area. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.